imagine you're driving through the Irish countryside with your mates. It's the end of the day, you're thinking about what you're going to do with the evening, probably get some dinner, have a game of cards, write a letter or something, and basically just think about how you're going to use your downtime. As you continue on driving down the road, boom, everything changes. You are plunged straight into hell. Rifle fire, bullets snapping past your head, a dull thud of the grenade explosion. The truck that you're driving in grinds to a halt and you all bail out the back of it. And as you do, you see your mates' bodies lying limp, dead or dying by the roadside. These are your mates who you've lived with, worked with and ate with for the last number of months. Your training kicks in, replacing the shock. You begin to fire back. Enemy muzzle flashes in the dying light give away to positions so you know what areas to fire at and what areas to avoid. But as you continue to fire back and you see more of your friends die, your training also tells you that you got two options. One, keep fighting and try and shoot your way out and escape the kill zone. Maybe go cross country and get back to the barracks, get some reinforcements and head back out and try and capture the enemy who've conducted this ambush. Or your second option, is to surrender and hope that you're well treated. Hope that your enemy observes the laws of war and the Geneva Convention and take good care of prisoners as if they were your own. This is the position that a number of auxiliaries found themselves in at Kilmichael. This is part three of Kilmichael. Just to recap the last episode, I talked about phases one to four of the Kilmichael ambush. Phase one was the setting up of the ambush, its mission, the planning and preparation, the deployment of the different sections and troops, and all of that. We talked about how Tom Barry had no contingency plan. He only knew on Saturday night that he was going to fight on the Sunday. There were no trenches across the road. There were no trees felled. And his whole plan to get the trucks to stop was fairly haphazard. Tom Barry mentioned no contingency plan. The mission was to kill or be killed. Phase two was the attack on the first lorry. Tom Barry was in uniform at the roadside, stops a tender, chucks in a grenade. Section one began to fire, and then the three other guys from the command post jump out onto the road, and Tom Barry and the command post kill all the auxiliaries in close quarter combat. They take no prisoners. Phase three is the attack on the second lorry by number two section. That doesn't go so well. They don't have any grenades, so there's no concussion or concussive effects felt by the soldiers and the auxiliaries begin to return fire and regain the initiative. Phase four is when Tom Barry and the command post replenish their ammo from the first lorry attack and move on to the second lorry. This is where we have the contentious false surrender. Tom Barry claims that some auxiliaries threw down the rifle, called for surrender, but then whipped out their pistols and shot three of the IRA men. Tom Barry's account also says that this fight went on for about 30 to 45 minutes. But there are three accounts that mention the false surrender and there are three that don't. The vast majority of them also say that the fight was very quick, anywhere between five to 10 minutes long. And that's pretty much where we are so far. And so right now, I'd like to start talking about the false surrender. So Tom Barry's account of the false surrender very basically is that on the attack on the second lorry, the auxiliaries threw down their rifles and threw their hands up shouting, we surrender. Some of the IRA volunteers stood up and then the auxiliaries took out their pistols and shot 
three of the IRA volunteers. Then Tom Barry gave the order to continue firing and not to stop until he gave the cease fire. So that's the false surrender in a nutshell. Now, I just want to point out that communication on the battlefield, especially during a firefight, is incredibly difficult. Rifle fire creates sound waves roughly in around 150 decibels. The Lee Enfield's nickname was the dinner bell because it created such a loud bang once it was been fired. So this cacophony of sound by rifle fire is something equivalent to standing right beside the speakers at your local nightclub. And so trying to communicate, even at distances of let's say 25 yards, which Tom Barry talks about, stand at the music speakers in your nightclub and order your round of drinks to the barman from 25 yards away and see what will happen. That is essentially what happens on many battlefields. Communication breaks down so often purely because they cannot hear each other because of the din or rifle fire. British historian Peter Hart rejects Tom Barry's claims of a false surrender. He says Tom Barry's account is riddled with lies and evasions and he bases his conclusions on four findings. A. Barry's report to his superiors. B. Barry's first published account of the ambush in 1932. C. Paddy O'Brien's account of the ambush. And D. Interviews with the volunteers present that day. So let's go through those in a little bit more detail. And I'll mention the traditionalists, Meade Ryan's and Murphy's counter-arguments to Hart's claims as well. Hart notes that Tom Barry didn't mention any false surrender to his superiors immediately after the ambush. The report that is in the General Strickland papers is not handwritten, but it's typed. This is the report that I mentioned in part one that has now become a British Army's official record of the Irish Rebellion in the 6th Division. The traditionalist historian Murphy states that while this report doesn't mention the false surrender, it also doesn't mention the date, it doesn't mention Tom Barry on the roadside in uniform. So why would Hart reject part of the account as inaccurate and then accept the failure to mention the false surrender as accurate? You know, why is he picking and choosing what he likes and doesn't like? Murphy also asks the question, why would Barry have had to make such a report when he met his commanding officer, Charlie Hurley, the officer in command of the 3rd Cork Brigade in the early hours of the 29th of November? Also, Tom Barry was in hospital from December the 3rd to the 28th, so he probably didn't have the time nor the access to a typewriter to write up that report. Meade Ryan then jumps in on the debate and points out the inaccuracies of the report, like the incorrect number of men in the ambush party. She believed that it might have been somewhere as high as 41 and the amount of ammunition that each man had. She also states that the language used is far more formal and nowhere near Tom Barry's colloquial style. Ryan then makes a very valid point that the British may have written a report because of the need of some on the British side to expedite the compensation claims of the families of the auxiliaries who had died or were injured at Kilmichael. Hart makes the point that Barry does not mention the false surrender in his interview in the Irish Press newspaper on the 26th of November 1932. But Meade Ryan produced an extract from the letter which Tom Barry wrote to the newspaper complaining that the reference to the false surrender had been omitted and asked that it be rectified. Therefore, that means that the false surrender was the work of the Irish press editor and not Tom Barry omitting it 
or creating it as fiction. Paddy O'Brien's account of the ambush is recorded in Liam DC's book Towards Ireland Free, which was published in 1973. It goes as follows. Meanwhile, the second tender was around 150 yards behind and become stuck in the road where the driver had tried unsuccessfully to turn it. The Oxys had jumped out, threw themselves in the road and started firing from the cover of the tender. We then opened fire from the rear and they realised that they were doomed. It was then realised that three of our men had been killed in Michael McCarthy's section. He himself had been shot through the head, Jim O'Sullivan through the jaw and Pat DC had two bullet wounds through his body. It was a short but grim fight. Of the 18 Oxys involved, one escaped and fled across country only to be captured and shot later and another who was taken as dead but survived for a while but never recovered from his wounds. The remaining 16 had been killed outright. End quote. Now Hart claims that Barry was very defensive about this because after the false surrender, several cadets shouted we surrender a second time but that the guerrillas kept firing until all had been killed. So if there was no trick or if there was no first false surrender, that would mean that the auxiliaries were gunned down for no reason at all, or that Tom Barry wasn't accepting any surrender whatsoever. But then, in 1975, Mead O'Brien interviewed O'Brien, and O'Brien said that his account in Towards Ireland Free was just a simple omission, and that there was a false surrender. Now, O'Brien gave his account to the Bureau of Military History, in 1953 at the DC's book in 73 and he makes no mention of the false surrender in either but then in 75 when Mita Ryan asks them he said that there was a false surrender. O'Brien would have been 77 when he was given his account to DC in 79 when he was given it to Mita. In White's book O'Brien is described at the time of the ambush as follows quote Although only 24, he had already been very active in the volunteers in the years leading up to the engagement at Kilmichael. He had a great working knowledge and understanding of how the British system worked in the locality. His advice was often sought on intelligence. End quote. And so it would seem fairly unlikely that a man of O'Brien's intellect would not once but twice omit the false surrender. Hart's final reason for trying to argue against Tom Barry's account of a false surrender is his interview with two veterans of the Kilmichael ambush. In his book, The IRA and Its Enemies, Hart states, quote, All the men interviewed agree on this point. McCarthy and O'Sullivan did not stand up and die because of a fake surrender. Two of the veterans considered Tom Barry's account to be an insult to the deceased. End quote. Now, while that is fairly damning, Hart doesn't actually name those two interviewees. He says it's for safety and security reasons, but because he doesn't name them, it makes it very hard for us to consider those statements concrete evidence. Ryan, on the other hand, she interviewed and named several veterans of the Kilmichael ambush in the 1970s. She interviewed Dan Horhan, who was in section two beside Jim O'Sullivan, and he said, quote, I'll never forget it. Same as yesterday. After they shouted that surrender, it was silence. Jim lifted himself, thought it was over. God rest his soul. Pat O'Donovan was also in section two. He states, quote, he heard the surrender call, end quote. 
Jack O'Sullivan. He was in section three near section two. He claimed, quote, he was definite that there were shouts of surrender and the auxiliaries began firing again, end quote. Paddy Ryan, as we just mentioned above, omits it in Pat Deasy's book, but then said it to Mita Ryan that there was a false surrender. And so because Mita names her interviewees, it lends a lot more credibility to her statement rather than Hart's. But herein lies the problem with Kilmichael and history in general. Just because Mita Ryan has proved with several witnesses saying that there was a false surrender, we can also prove that several other eyewitnesses say that there was no false surrender or certainly omit a false surrender. As I've mentioned already, Spud Murphy was with the command post with Tom Barry as they moved from the first lorry to the second lorry. I've already read Murphy's account, so I won't reread it, but I'll just say that in it, there's no mention of a false surrender. O'Driscoll, who's in section two, was beside Jim O'Sullivan. He said, quote, the second lorry was just approaching our position and had not quite reached it when the driver stopped and tried to reverse. We opened up. The Oxys jumped out and saw cover, replying to our fire. The fire was generally along the road. Jim O'Sullivan, who was beside me, was killed. As far as I can judge, a bullet struck his rifle and a part of the bolt was driven back into his face. Michael McCarthy, our section commander, was also killed. Pat Deasy, another of our section, was seriously wounded. Tom Barry had dealt with the first lorry and he led a party along the grass verge of the road to come up behind the auxiliaries fighting us. Soon the fighting was over and we were ordered out onto the road. End quote. Young, who was also in section two, he describes the fire being opened on the second lorry and two auxiliaries making a run for it. He followed one of them as he went across the bog and fired at him. Thought he was finished and then went looking for the second. Quote, in the meantime, the survivors from the second lorry had been continuing to fight. But in a few minutes, all firing ceased. The section under Tom Barry, which had dealt with the first lorry, came towards the second lorry, shooting as they moved. The surviving members of the flying column were ordered onto the roadway. End quote. Same again, no surrender. Maybe you could argue that Young could have been out of earshot while chasing that Oxy across the bog, but it's unlikely. Stephen O'Neill, who was probably the guy in charge of Section 3 on the southern half of the road, he doesn't mention any false surrender either. And lastly, Hennessy, he was also in Section 2 beside McCarty, John Lorden and Tim Crowley. He described how the second lorry arrived, Oxys jumped out and fired back, McCarty was killed with a bullet to the head, his rifle was fouled and stopped working because he too had been wounded in the head and the blood dripped into the breach so he had to take McCarty's rifle and continued firing. He then says, quote, Our orders were to fix bayonets and charge onto the road when we heard three blasts from the OC's whistle. I heard the three blasts and got up from my position shouting hands up. At the same time, one of the Yogsies about five yards from me drew his revolver. He had thrown down his rifle. I pulled on him and shot him dead. I got back to cover where I remained for a few minutes, firing at living and dead Yogsies on the road. The column OC sounded his whistle again. Nearly all the Yogsies had been wiped out. End quote. Now, a few points can be made there about Hennessy's statement. First one is 
He says that the ceasefire whistle was blown by Tom Barry, the column commander, and therefore not by the auxiliaries. Meaning that it wasn't the auxiliaries who called for surrender first, but rather it was Tom Barry. So if you were an auxiliary fighting for your life, and the guy who's trying to kill you stands up and presents a far bigger target, why wouldn't you shoot him? You haven't heard the call to surrender because of the noise of gunshots firing all around you. Two, if Hennessy is talking about a false surrender when he mentions the three blasts from Tom Barry's whistle, well then that happened after McCarthy was killed. And so that's nothing like the false surrender as described by Tom Barry in Grilla Days in Ireland. So is Tom Barry wrong about how McCarthy died? Is Hennessy, who was beside McCarthy, right and took his rifle? Has Hennessy mixed up the times on all of this? There's a lot of things here that are just so confusing. And lastly, what I find most interesting is Hennessy says nearly all the Oxies had been wiped out. Now, does that mean that he had mentioned the one guy who had gotten away? Probably unlikely because, you know, they probably would have followed him and shot him, made sure he didn't get away. Is he talking about the Oxy who was left for dead? Unlikely because they thought he was dead. So does that mean that he's talking about wounded Oxies? But we know that nobody survived. So does that mean that the IRA killed these wounded Oxies? Or does Hennessy mean that there were some Oxies who were taken prisoner? And then what happened to those prisoners? Because we know that only two guys survived. So you could argue that if Hennessy's word is true and nearly all the Oxies were wiped out, that would mean that there was probably some cadets who were taken as prisoners. And that would mean that they were killed because we know that 16 Oxies were killed because we know that all of them, apart from the guy who got away, Cecil Guthrie, and the last guy who was left for dead on the side of the road were the only two survivors. So this is what's really confusing. And so because of all of this, I don't think any straightforward conclusion can be made about the false surrender from just the veterans' accounts alone. Like I said, some say that they do, others say that there wasn't, or at least they don't mention a false surrender. Arguments can be made for either side. But what I think is true is that you can't rely on these veterans' accounts alone. They're just two very different from one another. So was there a false surrender? I think we're going to have to look a lot deeper into the other bits and pieces of information that are available to us. And certainly we'll be able to find out if prisoners were taken and if they were killed or were they killed as Tom Barry described it. The official British report in the aftermath of the ambush claimed that the prisoners were killed, quote, after firing had continued for some time and many men were wounded, overwhelming forces of the ambushers came out and forcibly disarmed the survivors. There followed a brutal massacre. The dead and wounded were hacked about the head with axes, shotguns fired into their bodies, and they were savagely mutilated. End quote. Historian Peter Hart also believes that at least five auxiliaries were killed after the ambush, and possibly three of these men were not even wounded before surrendering. So let's attempt to see if there's any pattern of killing or mistreatment of Crown forces by the IRA after engagements where the IRA had won and had taken Crown forces prisoner. 
between January 1920 and July 1921, there were at least 30 engagements where the IRA or won the engagement and had Crown forces in their custody. I won't go through all of them because these podcasts can be long enough as it is, but in 28 of them, the Crown forces were disarmed and released. Now, it should be clarified that the IRA didn't have any prisons in which to put captives into. Sometimes captives were held in safe houses and moved from place to place, but even holding a few captives or prisoners seemed to tax the IRA's resources heavily, having to feed them, having to constantly keep them on the move. It just wasn't worth it. Now, the two exceptions to those 30 engagements were the Scramogue ambush, where the two surviving RIC men were killed by their own side in a blue and blue situation. They, um, the RIC men were dressed in plain clothes and were mistaken. And the other one was in Dromore County Sligo, where the IRA had shot two RIC men after they had taken them prisoner. They had shot these two RIC prisoners because they were being pursued by RIC and British Army reinforcements and a six hour firefight ensued. In three other ambushes that I didn't include in the 30 above, all the Crown forces were killed and so there was nobody there to provide eyewitness statements. These were Renine and the 22nd of September 1920 where all six RIC members were killed. There was Drum Keen on the 3rd of February 1921 where 11 were killed and two escaped and Rathmore on the 4th of May 1921 where eight more were killed and one escaped. And in none of these engagements were there any eyewitnesses because those survivors had fled the scene. So it can be argued that a substantial number of counts were given by the IRA veterans or those close to them. And obviously they would have had a vested interest in not revealing any atrocities if they did occur. But as there were survivors for nearly all of the engagements listed above, it can be assumed that any killing of RIC prisoners would have been mentioned. And in nearly all of the accounts of RIC casualties between 1919 and 1922, there are no accusations of RIC prisoners being killed by the IRA, with the only exception of Kilmichael. So given this situation and this information, it would seem that in the overwhelming majority of cases, the IRA policy was to disarm and release members of the Crown forces if captured during military engagements. On the flip side, however, the Crown forces would usually disarm any IRA volunteer taken prisoner, but owing that they did have barracks and prisons, they normally put volunteers into custody. However, the subsequent treatment of IRA prisoners by their captors was often atrocious. There were frequent accusations of prisoner maltreatment, torture, and a large number of IRA prisoners were killed either judicially or extrajudicially while in custody. A common explanation for the death of an IRA prisoner was that they were shot while attempting to escape, even though they had little chance of actually escaping. There are also three examples of where the Crown forces killed IRA prisoners after a military engagement 
without putting them into prison. They were at Clonmult in Cork in February 1921, Selton Hill in Leitrim in March 1921, and in Clohine in Cork, March 1921. So given that this was the general situation, perhaps Tom Barry knew what fate was in store for his men if they were captured. And so that's why he implemented a kill or be killed, fight to the end type of mission at Kilmichael. The historian Hart seems to think that there was something different about the flying column led by Tom Barry. Hart says, quote, It certainly seems significant that in previous attacks where Barry was not the only brigade officer, such as at Turin, enemy prisoners were treated decently, but at Kilmichael and subsequent actions, they were liable to be summarily executed. End quote. Here Hart is implying Barry instituted a policy of killing prisoners. At the back of this assertion, Hart gives the example of two of a group of three captured British soldiers who were shot in Bandon in the 22nd of February 1921. And Hart's not wrong here. Barry did authorise the execution of those two soldiers. But Hart mustn't have done his homework because Barry's account of the killing of those two unarmed British soldiers in Bandon that night states that they were killed specifically because they were members of the Essex Regiment and the Essex Regiment had just killed 11 members of the West Cork IRA while they were unarmed prisoners. Barry further specifies that it was for the extrajudicial killing of these men and for the attempted murder of others, the torture of IRA prisoners, the burning of homes and many other terrors inflicted by the Essex Regiment upon their community. And to cloud the water even further, the third soldier captured that night was a wireless naval operator. But according to Barry, he was let go because, quote, he was an armed member of a foreign army of occupation, but he was not guilty of the murder of unarmed Irishmen, end quote. And there's another incident that somewhat contradicts Hart's assertion that Tom Barry would authorise the killing of soldiers. In Skibbereen on the 8th of February 1921, three unarmed members of the King's Liverpool Regiment were captured and subsequently released because, quote, of their fair attitude to the IRA prisoners, end quote. In fact, both Tom Barry and DC praised the commanding officer of the Liverpools in Skibbereen, referring to the OC Colonel Hudson as, quote, an upright and humane man and a good type of British officer, end quote. Barry would take the next step and even say that Hudson saved the lives of several IRA prisoners. But there's no smoke without fire. And certainly Tom Barry did have a darker side to him. Mossy Harnett was an officer in the IRA's West Limerick Brigade. And in his memoir, he relates an incident in the summer of 1921 when he and an armed guard were transporting a black and tan prisoner from Limerick to headquarters Southern Division in Lombardstown, Cork. Hartnett picks up this story. Quote, On arrival there, I met Brigadier Tom Barry and Tom Daly. They accepted responsibility for my prisoner, but Tom Barry remarked, Why didn't you just drop him into a bog hole on your way here? End quote. Now, 
that could just be construed as soldier's dark humor but it does take on a far more sinister context when you put it beside the death of unarmed prisoners. So in Barry's case, that would highlight that not all prisoners were summarily executed once they were captured. But what it also highlights is that in certain circumstances, like the two Essex soldiers captured in Bandon, or the black and tan prisoner transported down from Limerick, that Barry was willing to condone and even joke about the killing of prisoners. So does that mean that at Kilmichael, he was willing to condone the killing of wounded prisoners also? We'll look into that a little bit more. Tom Barry claims that it was during the false surrender that three of his men were shot, they being Michael McCarty, the leader of number two section, Jim O'Sullivan and Pat Deasy, who was later die of his wounds. Meter Ryan also backs up Tom Barry's account. Now, I've already read Jack Hennessy's account, but just to reiterate, Jack Hennessy claims that during the ambush, he fired off a couple of rounds from his rifle, it seized up and stopped. He claims that it was blood dripping from his head wound into the breach of the rifle that caused it to stop. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But more importantly, he claims that he then grabbed Michael McCarthy's rifle, who was already dead at this time, fired off another few shots, and then he stood up during the false surrender. So that would mean that, according to Hennessy, that would mean that Michael McCarthy was dead before the false surrender. So that leaves us with Pat Deasy and Jim O'Sullivan. One of the other IRA volunteers, O'Driscoll, he claimed that, quote, as far as I can judge, a bullet struck O'Sullivan's rifle and part of the bolt was driven back into his face, end quote. However, if Jim O'Sullivan's rifle had have been hit by a bullet and ricocheted the bolt back into his face, how come the description of his wounds don't match? Now what I mean is, this has happened before in history. In 1915, a soldier in the 2nd Battalion, Royal Irish Rifles, had his rifle hit by an enemy bullet. His sergeant, a corkman called Sergeant Lucy, describes the scene as follows. Quote, One of my men, Brown was his name, had his rifle shattered by an enemy bullet as he was firing and scores of metal dust splinters penetrated his face, hands and chest. He looked in a dreadful mess, but he was not badly wounded and he moved out of the line quite unconcerned. He seemed alright, judging by the way he kept wondering about what part of his rifle the enemy had hit. End quote. And that makes sense, because if O'Sullivan's rifle had been hit by a 303 bullet, which is fairly substantial in size, travelling at around 840 metres per second, if it was going to hit that, it's going to cause that rifle to shatter, to break, and O'Sullivan's face would have totally been peppered by all of those shards striking him in the face. But that's not the description. Paddy O'Brien stated that O'Sullivan was hit in the jaw, and that's it. He doesn't mention any of the extra wounds that Private Brown had in 1915. And I think that the cause of this wound is something completely different. Now, I've mentioned this in the first episode when I started talking about the Ross rifle. I talked about how the West Cork Flying Column had managed to acquire a lot of these Ross rifles, roughly 44, through various different attacks on Coast Guard stations and such. 
and this is where I want to get into the Ross rifle because the Ross rifle comes with a reputation and this reputation is that it is a super accurate high velocity weapon but it was completely unsuited to combat. It required careful handling and storage, a very particular Canadian made ammunition that not only did the IRA not even have it, but Canadian troops in the First World War didn't even have access to. In expert hands like that of a sniper or someone who was well trained in the Ross rifle, it was remarkably efficient. It was clinical. But in the untrained hands like those of an IRA man who didn't get to spend that much time with it, it was nearly as much as a threat to the firer than it was to the target. It even managed to get its own tagline, which was, quote, the Ross rifle kills as much behind as it does in front, end quote. Hardly a selling point if you're trying to get this rifle into the arms of thousands of soldiers. The Ross rifle came about because of the inaccuracy of British rifles or the obsolete Martini Henry rifles that the Canadians were using in the Boer War. They were far outclassed by the Boers, Manlicker and Mauser rifles and they needed something more up to date, more modern. So the Canadian government put in a request for 15,000 short magazine Lee Enfields from British manufacturers but nobody could fill that request so the Canadians had to turn to their own manufacturers. This is when Sir Charles Ross, a Scottish industrialist, jumps at the offer and in 1902 wins the contract to supply the Canadian government with 12,000 rifles in 1903. Rifles are two years in production and by 1905, the first 1,000 Ross rifles were delivered to the Canadian Mounted Police. And right from the start, there were problems with the Ross rifle. There was an incident with the Mounted Police during a firing range exercise where the bolt exploded and shot back into the face of the firer, blinding him in one eye. Sir Ross attempted to address this problem, withdraws those rifles, works on fixing it and produces the Ross rifle Mark II, but the same problems are still occurring and so he has to withdraw those two. Eventually, he will produce the Ross rifle Mark III and these are the rifles that the Canadian forces will take with them to Western Europe in the First World War and at least 44 of them will end up in the arsenal of the West Cork Flying Brigade. You see, the Ross rifle had a number of design flaws right from the start and even up into the Mark III variant. Primarily among these was that when it was engaged in rapid fire under wet conditions, the rifle was notoriously unreliable and the mechanism was prone to locking up. This meant that the rifle couldn't fire any bullets New bullets couldn't be fed in from the magazine and old spent cartridges couldn't be ejected. So essentially you're left with a big stick and that's not going to do you too much good in the trenches of the First World War. Now you would think that after 10 years of production and design flaws and fixing those flaws that the locking mechanism problem would be sorted. But that's just not the case. Michael Sheehan, a Canadian soldier, regales us of exactly what happened. Quote, I'll never forget our first sight of the Germans. We had those beautiful Ross rifles. They were absolutely the slickest rifles you could find anywhere, but they were no good for war. The Germans were coming. We could see them coming across down there. So we opened up at these Ross rifles and I bet we didn't fire more than a dozen before it seized. 
everything just got as tight as it could be. We stood on the bolt to try and open the breach, but nothing. The rifles were absolutely useless. End quote. And it wasn't just Sheehan and his unit that suffered these experiences. The Ross rifle was so bad that at the Battle of Ypres in 1915, 5,000 Canadian expeditionary troops ditched their rifles and picked up Lee Enfields from dead or dying English soldiers. That's how bad it was. That's roughly a brigade of troops ditching their rifles. It was so bad that in June 1915, Field Marshal French, the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, wrote to Westminster informing them that, in summary, he said that the Ross rifle could not be relied upon to work smoothly and efficiently in rapid fire and that it needed Canadian-made ammunition. He also said that there wasn't enough Canadian-made ammunition in theatre, so they had to use English-made ammunition instead. This English-made ammunition was slightly bigger than its Canadian counterpart and that also caused the rifle to jam. French wrote, quote, I did not feel comfortable sending this division into battle with the Ross rifle and ordered an immediate rearming of these troops with Lee Enfields before they go into action, end quote. But still, a year later in 1916, the Canadians were still being issued with the Ross rifles. Douglas Haig, the famous British general, the commander-in-chief of the British Army during the Battle of the Somme, he wrote in 1916, quote, The Ross rifle is less trustworthy than the Lee Enfield, and the majority of the men armed with the Ross have not the confidence in it that is so essential that they should possess. The inquiry of these conclusions were based on the testaments which said a high percentage of jams were experienced during a hostile attack. End quote. And season up wasn't the only problem that haunted the Ross rifle. Sergeant Lindsay Elliott was a Canadian armourer sergeant and he became aware of another very dangerous flaw. It was after the weapon was stripped down and the bolt removed, it was possible to reassemble the bolt mechanism by repositioning the bolt head incorrectly, replace it into the weapon's mechanism and still fire around from the weapon even though the bolt was unlocked. Now what's that mean? That basically means that if the mechanism was reassembled incorrectly and fired while the bolt was unlocked, that as soon as you pull that trigger, the bullet would be shot out the front of the barrel, but at the same time, that explosion and those compressive gases would shoot the bolt back directly into the face of the firer, causing serious or even fatal injuries. And I've seen how simple it is to reassemble this rifle incorrectly. Basically, with the bolt head, there's a sleeve that goes over it, and you're meant to leave about an inch in space between the bolt head and the end of the sleeve. And that just looks silly. It doesn't look right because to the untrained eye, all you do is slide that bolt head in over that sleeve, match them up, make sure they're flush, and then you secure them in place. The Ross rifle looks like it has been properly assembled when in fact it hasn't been properly assembled. The easiest thing that I can equate it to is essentially if you were to put on a pair of shoes, let's say, and instead of putting your foot all the way into the shoe, you leave your heel out, sticking out of the shoe. That's how the Ross rifle is meant to look. But to the untrained eye, you basically see that shoe, you put your foot all the way in, nice and cozy. I don't know if that analogy works, but that's the one that came to my head right now and I'm gonna stick with it. But basically, to the untrained eye, 
it looked properly done when you did it wrong and it looked as if it made more sense to have it assembled incorrectly. Um, and there's a great video on this on YouTube. There's several videos. I watched Forgotten Weapons. Those guys are pretty good. Um, and they basically showed what I'm gonna talk about uh, in quite some detail. But back to the Ross Rifle and Sergeant Lindsay Elliott. He recalls one scene from his earlier days in the trenches. He saw, quote, a comrade with a firing pin, mainspring and cocking piece of his Ross rifle embedded in his face. Another dead with the bolt out of his rifle and the lugs badly torn, end quote. And it wasn't just him either. There were instances of the Ross bolts blowing back and maiming or killing the shooter. In Brant, Alberta, H.A. McNeil had half his face blown away. Now he lived, less unfortunate was Louis Lavalle of Keith, Alberta. He died 11 hours after the bolt tore away part of his head. When Lavalle's rifle was recovered, it was a Ross rifle and it had been found that had been reassembled wrong. And the problems didn't end there either. The storing of these rifles was very particular. To prevent rust, the guns were heavily oiled by the manufacturer and the buyers were told to wipe them clean before use. But in order to do so, you had to strip the rifle, including the bolt, wipe all the excess oil off, and there was no accompanying instructions how to reassemble the bolt correctly. So these type of blowback accidents were bound to happen. The Ross rifle also had very particular nuances when it came to its ammunition. Generally, it was a .303 rifle, but it had to be Canadian manufactured ammunition. And that was just not in abundance, especially not on the Western Front. The IRA had an even worse supply of ammunition, and rifle ammunition in particular was always short on hand. At Kilmichael, there was an unorthodox method of ammo supply. A member of Common Amon, Sheelam O'Neill, supplied Michael McCarthy with 100 rounds of ammunition which had been stored in her house since 1917. So they were probably sitting under a floorboard or in an outhouse or behind a wall gathering dust for nearly three years. And because of the fine tuning of the Ross rifle, that was bound to cause some seizing or some stoppages to occur. There was even a court of inquiry about the design flaws of the Ross rifle, where experts on the weapon, like Major Blair, were questioned. Quote, question. Would you call that a faulty design? Blair answered, in my opinion, it would be a fault in design. The court asked, is there anything from the external point of view to show that the rifle is assembled in the wrong way? Blair answered, to one who knows it, yes. To one who does not know it, there is not. End quote. So even experts on the weapon said that this design flaw was so bad because you had to be very well acquainted with the weapon and you're not going to be well acquainted with it until you know how to handle it and train with it and strip it. And how is that going to happen if by the first time you start using it, you assemble it incorrectly and it blows back in your face, killing or maiming you? There is just such little chance that the IRA would have been familiar with the mechanism fault of the Ross rifle by November 1920. To paraphrase Major Blair, to the untrained eye, the Ross rifles, when incorrectly assembled, look like normal functioning rifles. In fact, Floor Crowley of the Bantry IRA, who was present when they stole those rifles off the Royal Navy vessel, said, quote, There, 
neatly arranged on their racks like pins on paper, were ten carefully oiled, perfectly preserved rifles. It was a sight that some of those young Bantry youths will never forget. Ten excellent Canadian Ross rifles, the first of their kind they had ever seen. They looked to these young IRA men like the manna in the desert must have looked like to Moses. End quote. Liam Deasy was aware of the significant contribution that these rifles were to have on IRA efforts in subsequent operations in the West Corps Brigade's area of operations. He said, quote, This capture improved the volunteers' position in the Bantry Battalion and indeed the West Corps Brigade generally. Not merely did the success of this raid greatly boost the morale of the men, but the arms were a welcome addition to the Brigade Armoury. Good use of them was made in many important engagements later in the war. End quote. So these Ross rifles were put into circulation around the West Cork Brigade and it is very possible that at least one, if not more, of the 44 taken found its way into Tom Barry's flying column and more than likely into the hands of Jim O'Sullivan at Kilmichael in November 1920. So as you can see, the Ross rifle, while it was an excellent hunting or target rifle, it was in no way suited the combat firing. Because of the fine tolerance of the rifle, its breech got easily spoiled and was prone to seize if there was any grit or dirt or anything got into the mechanism. The Ross rifle itself was actually considerably longer than its Lee Enfield counterpart and so in the trenches of the First World War it was too long and awkward and would get caught and more dirt dumped into it from the side of the trenches. And most importantly it wasn't reliable, it wasn't soldier proof. And being soldier proof was the chief characteristic necessary in any rifle, even to this day. They need to be able to take a beating and be manhandled essentially by their user and the environment in which they're being used. And not only that, even when they weren't being used, they weren't being stored properly, they weren't being heavily oiled and they're kept in bad conditions which were to have a negative effect on the usability of the rifle. Ernie O'Malley recognized these difficulties when he said, quote, it was hard to keep our weapons in repair, harder still to keep our arms and ammo dry and clean, end quote. So really, the Ross rifle was a finely tuned instrument that required a level of knowledge, attention and care that many would agree that was simply beyond the limited resources of the West Cork IRA. So this leads to the question, and I know that I'm going to sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist with my tinfoil hat and I live underneath the stairs, but it does beg the question, were these defective Ross rifles imported into Ireland during the War of Independence and placed in military weak spots like the Coast Guard stations or the naval vessel that was unguarded where the 10 Ross rifles in Banshee were taken by the volunteers? Were they placed in these areas, these military weak spots, primarily because they knew that they were defective rifles and that they would fall easily into the hands of the IRA volunteers and inflict serious wounds or even death upon the IRA without the IRA knowing what was the cause of that? The fact that a total of over 30 rifles were taken from the Coast Guard stations at Ballycrovane and at Hoa Strand with what one volunteer said, quote, was surprisingly little police or military activity, end quote, 
and the Royal Navy, by conveniently docking in Bantry against the local RIC's wishes, had facilitated more defective Ross rifles coming into the IRA's possession. All of that supports a suspicion. It's a suspicion. Maybe it's not as bad a conspiracy theory as you know Elvis still being alive or aliens existing, but it, there is a fairly substantial suspicion that this was a British naval intelligence operation, or at least they may have been involved in some aspect in facilitating these defective rifles into the hands of the IRA. And the man behind this would have been Rear Admiral Reginald Blinker Hall. Up until 1919, British Naval Intelligence Division was headed by Hall. And Hall was described as, quote, the most successful intelligence chief of the First World War. And his intelligence operations are still some of the best worldwide. Hall is credited with bringing the USA into the First World War on the Allies' side when he intercepted the Zimmerman cable. And the Zimmerman cable was basically a coded message from the German government to the Mexican government stating that if the Mexicans were to attack the US that the German government would support Mexico. Back home in Ireland, Hall was responsible for intercepting and decoding communications that led to the interception of the odd, thus preventing the importation of German arms and ammunition for the 1916 Rising and the arrest of Sir Roger Casement. Now, Hall was pretty devious, and this can be seen in a number of different cases, but I'll give you just two. The first one was during the First World War in 1917. Waterford Harbour had been heavily mined by a German mine layer, and Hall insisted that all shipping be banned from entering the harbour for two weeks. Then what he does is, he arranged for a message to be intercepted by the Germans stating that the harbour had been cleared by Royal Navy minesweepers and that shipping could resume. A few days later, the German mine layer returns and gets blown out of the water by the very mines it had laid just a fortnight ago. On a side note, the intelligence that was gathered from that submarine was a the first time that Navy divers could actually could investigate a wreckage because of the shallow waters and b it highlighted that u-boats could easily pass through the dover strait which was meant to be heavily protected and led to the dismissal of admiral sir reginald bacon who was head of dover patrol the other instance of hall's deviousness was seen when he maintained a constant surveillance on the irish republican activities throughout the war of independence so much so that he actually chartered a yacht called the Sayonara and he crewed it with Royal Navy personnel and he disguised it as an American vessel with an overtly anti-British owner. And this was so effective that both the local RIC and the Royal Navy kept a close watch on the Sayonara. This achieved its effect, quote, The scrutiny had not gone unnoticed by the Irish rebels, who assumed that the yacht and its crew had come to the west coast to support and encourage them, and the Irish were more than ready to contact and befriend Hall's agents." End quote. Hall understood the IRA's need for rifles, and so he took advantage of that. But Hall was a lot more subtle. He used a surgical instrument rather than a blunt hammer. If the British intelligence intended a policy of either sabotaging weapons or ammunition to be really effective, then they'd need to be distributed gradually. 
and gradual distribution meant that certain rifles here and there would be doctored with and made defective while still looking like they were functional. And this is the case with the Ross rifles. When they were used or not assembled correctly, they caused grievous harm or death to the firer. Hall's ultimate objective of this operation was to kill IRA men without the IRA even knowing that they were being killed by the actions of the British. And so this is why I wanted to talk about the Ross Rifle and the British Naval Intelligence Division. It's because if we were to believe Hall's idea of gradual distribution, it's not completely mental to believe it. Look at the 40 plus rifles that the IRA were able to seize with relatively little military or police activity at the two Coast Guard stations and the 10 that they picked up off the unguarded Royal Naval vessel in Bantry. And why were these Ross rifles distributed at the end of the war? There was no shortage of Lee Enfields. In fact, there were millions of them around. But it kind of makes sense that they distributed these defective Ross rifles that were prone to failure. The Royal Marines were issued with the Lee Enfield from 1919, so they shouldn't have been using it. And the Coast Guard would have been better off with the Lee Enfields too. So it doesn't make sense that the British authorities issued these defective rifles, unless it was part of Hall's gradual distribution plan. And we know that these rifles from those raids found their way into the West Cork Brigade's arsenal and were used in subsequent events like that at Kilmichael. There were at least two Ross rifles present in Kilmichael. One most likely used by Jack Hennessy and the second most likely by Jim O'Sullivan. Now, Jack Hennessy's account stated that he was continuously firing and reloading. The Ross rifle had only a five round magazine, whereas the Lee Enfield had a 10, so that's why he was constantly reloading. This rapid fire, as we've seen, caused the Ross rifle to jam and seize up. And like the Canadians in the First World War, it had to be discarded and replaced by a better rifle. And that's why, according to Hennessy, he picked up McCarthy's rifle, who was already dead beside him. Hennessy stated that it was the blood dripping from his head wound that had fouled the breach and that's what he thinks caused his rifle to jam. But there's no way that that would have ever happened because if ever you're lying down firing a rifle, you're behind the breach, not on top of it. The only time you'd be on top of the breach is if you're firing it like Rambo or something and it's cocked underneath your arm. So that's not the case. And that would also prove that the IRA were not very well acquainted with the rifles, especially the Ross rifle, seeing that they didn't know that these rifles were prone to seizing up. Unlike the poor Canadians, who, quote, apparently etched into their minds, were all too vivid scenes of advancing Huns who couldn't be stopped because of seized up rifles, of desperate men hammering frozen Ross rifles with entrenching tools or jumping on them with mud-logged boots, tears of exasperation running down their cheeks, end quote. Hennessy also stated that Jim O'Sullivan was dead early on in the ambush. And that makes sense because as soon as Jim O'Sullivan fired his first shot from that defective Ross rifle, the bolt would have blown back into his face, killing him outright. And his wounds that are described by other IRA volunteers match the wounds of Canadian soldiers from the First World War. There is also a case to be made that Cadet Jones was the man responsible for killing Michael McCarthy. But even if that's not true, what's really important here is that by Jack Hennessy's account, Michael McCarthy 
and Jim O'Sullivan were dead before the false surrender. This, of course, doesn't match at all Tom Barry's account of both of these men dying during the false surrender. So once again, Tom Barry's account of what happened at Kilmichael doesn't hold much water. By this stage of the ambush, number two section had taken 50% casualties. Out of the 10 volunteers in that section, three were dead or dying and two more were wounded. With the second lorry dealt with, Tom Barry says that all the auxiliaries were dead or dying and the action was now over. He stated that the ambush would have taken 30 to 45 minutes, but given that they had only 35 or 36 rounds each, the ambush couldn't have taken that long. Either way, the volunteers were drastically low on ammunition and extremely vulnerable to a attack by supporting British troops had they been in the area. In order to recover his troops from a clear state of shock, I don't want to say PTSD, but certainly they would have had some shock or negative effect of what they had just witnessed and experienced. But in order to inject some normalcy and some efficiency into the column, Tom Barry ordered his men to reload their weapons and proceeded to perform arms drill, marching them up and down the corpse-strewn, blood-stained road. Tom Barry reacquainted his men with their rifles in case any other after-action was likely to occur. Once he felt that they were no longer suffering from shock, it's most likely that they moved out of the area to a more safe location to recuperate. Understandably, as the leader of the flying column, Tom Barry began to blame himself for the deaths of his men. Quote, One of the greatest emotional challenges for inexperienced officers came in the aftermath of battle. They tended to brood over things of direct personal responsibility for each casualty. Training publications took a hard line in dispelling their anxieties. Junior officers were to steel themselves against losing men and to realise that casualties were an expected part of war and must be accepted as such. End quote. Shortly after Kilmichael, Tom Barry was hospitalised in Cork City. Now maybe it was just some sickness or perhaps it could have been a physical manifestation of the anxieties and the trauma of what he had experienced at Kilmichael. But once they moved out, the ambush was complete. The column moved away victorious. Tom Barry had achieved his mission of killing all of the enemy before they killed him. Tom Barry says it's because of this false surrender that resulted in the death of 16 of the auxiliaries. But the evidence doesn't match Tom Barry's accounts. The guys like Young who were standing right beside Tom Barry, their accounts don't match Tom Barry's account of the false surrender. And the guys who were beside the dead and wounded, DC, McCarthy, O'Sullivan, their accounts don't match Tom Barry's account of how they died. Hennessy says that both McCarthy and O'Sullivan are dead before the false surrender even occurred, if a false surrender even occurred. So Tom Barry's reasoning for killing 16 of the 18 auxiliaries doesn't match up. The only real question now standing is how the auxiliaries met their death. We'll pick up the story in the next episode. And until then, good luck.